Hi, I'm Abigail Wilson, your host for this podcast, and we're back to discuss something very topical, supply chain attacks. The recent Sunburst hack has once again brought this topic to the very forefront of our minds, in which a number of companies were compromised via an advanced backdoor. We imagine by now that you're all familiar with what happened, and many of our listeners themselves may have been working overtime in the aftermath of the attack being identified, as well as discussed in the press during December 2020. But as we looked towards the longer-term impact, how can this incident act as a catalyst for better defense in the future? And what steps can you take to protect yourself against supply chain risks? Joining me to offer their advice is Gabriel Curry, our incident management lead, and Will Oram, our cyber remediation lead. Will, Gabe, thank you for joining us. Awesome. Thanks very much, Abby. Happy to be here. Hi, Abby. Thanks for having us today. So, since the Sunburst hack appeared in the press, what types of conversations have you been having with clients? Gabe? Yeah, sure. So, um, as you mentioned, Abby, obviously, this is something that's probably really, really relevant to a lot of our listeners who I'm sure have been kind of working overtime in the weeks and months following this to uh, kind of understand the risk that this might, might pose for their organization. And uh, I've been talking to lots of clients about this. Uh, and I think broadly the, the queries br- kind of bucket up into three separate things. First of all is intelligence. So actually trying to understand what's happened. Like, you know, this is a really complex hack in, in, in many ways, although kind of quite simple in others. So really trying to understand like, what are the kind of tools and techniques that this attacker used? And, and therefore, what are the kinds of things uh, that organizations need to know? Uh, and how can they look for those things on their network? The second is uh, I've just kind of led into detection. So how can organizations actually go and find the signs of compromise uh, in their environments that potentially might mean that they're impacted here? And then third is response. So if they do find those signs of compromise, what do they need to do in the kind of immediate, short and uh, kind of medium to long term in order to respond to that? Before we take a deeper dive into some of what you've just mentioned, would you mind just briefly covering how many it looks like have been affected by this attack? Yeah, sure. I mean, so I, I think that's a really interesting question, right? And lots of people, uh, especially in the press, I think, are, uh, you know, I think there's quite a lot of hyperbole around this attack and, you know, it being the kind of biggest hack ever. Uh, and I think broadly that kind of thing is slightly unhelpful. Um, so what we do know about this is that it's likely motivated by espionage and it's quite targeted. Um, now, it looks like uh, approximately uh, 300,000 organizations were kind of customers of um, this particular product that was impacted, um, that about 18,000 of those organizations received uh, one of the updates that was impacted. But actually, the number of organizations that went on to have that um, kind of backdoor exploited was much smaller. So initial reporting from kind of industry partners and government suggests that only around kind of 50 organizations were targeted. Um, so, you know, actually, while the numbers that we're seeing are very high in terms of people who were vulnerable, the actual numbers of people who were targeted were actually pretty limited. Uh, so, you know, calling this the kind of biggest hack ever uh, is perhaps not quite uh, a defensible position to take. No, th- thanks for that context, Gabe. Um, just before we move on, do you have any recommendations of what organizations should do if they think they have been uh, affected by this attack? 
Yeah, sure. I mean, so I think the, the first thing that organizations need to do is to understand their exposure. So work out if they have the effective products on their environment. Uh, and there are lots of different ways that they can do that. So, you know, looking at their CMDBs uh, or alternatively using things like their EDR tools to search for like running processes relating to those products across their environment. Um, and then once they find those products, they need to work out if they're affected or not. So there are certain versions which we know are impacted uh, and all of the details of those are on the vendor's website. So uh, kind of work that out, kind of cross-reference the numbers. Um, if you do think you've got an affected version, then there's probably some kind of immediate actions that you should take off the back of that, uh, which broadly is around kind of containment and investigation. Um, so, you know, the first thing is working out, do you already have any kind of instant response plans that are going to help be helpful here and putting those into place uh, and then doing anything on top of those? Or, or if you don't have instant response plans, uh, kind of coming up with those on the fly and uh, and trying to kind of immediately mitigate the risk. So basically taking the impacted software offline um, and then um, kind of taking any other containment steps that you might need to take in order to, to mitigate that risk. Um, and then kind of beginning an investigation to work out if you think there are any kind of second stage indicators of compromise that might indicate that that vulnerable product has actually been exploited. Uh, and there are loads of different indicators of compromise that are available that you can use. Uh, I know that here at PwC, we've published some and that's been provided to our clients. There's loads of really great uh, resources out there that organizations can use uh, in order to, to determine if they've been impacted. Um, and then, you know, if you then find those uh, kind of second stage indicators of compromise, then what that means is that the kind of vulnerability or the backdoor has been exploited. Um, and that means that uh, you're probably dealing with a very sophisticated attacker who likely has quite widespread access to your network. And that's the point in time where you need to think, do I have the skills and experience and kind of capabilities to, to respond to this internally? Do I need to call someone who can help me be that kind of a... a a retained instant response provider, uh, lawyers, informing the security services or law enforcement, all that kind of thing. Um, and then kind of going from there in terms of the response. Uh, after that, there's probably a whole load of other things that you can do, but uh, I kind of I won't steal Will's thunder in terms of remediation. Well, thank you for that, Gabe. Um, so moving on, now that this attack has highlighted several risks for organizations to consider as we move towards the medium to longer, longer term solutions to this. Firstly, looking at the supply chain, which, which we know has been used as an attack vector before, why are organizations still vulnerable? And this is despite learning opportunities from previous high profile supply chain attacks. Gabe, would you like to provide some insight into that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think in terms of like this being a supply chain security issue, I think this is really interesting, right? Because actually this is a really sophisticated attack and, you know, and Will might want to argue with me on this one, but I'm not 100% sure that, you know, supply chain security and kind of third party assurance can reasonably be expected to identify this kind of thing. You know, I'm not sure it's reasonable that we should expect organizations to kind of audit the code of every single supplier on their environment. Um, so, you know, I think this is definitely a supply chain security problem, but, you know, more supply chain security perhaps isn't the solution here. Um, I don't know, Will, if you've got any thoughts on that? I think one thing that organizations uh, can definitely do is look at the, the privileges um, that they have software and applications running with on their networks. 
So uh, with some of the products and questions here, speaking to clients, they're running them on their networks as the main admin, for example. And if organizations can work to uh, implement least privilege and make sure that when they have these applications running on their networks from other companies and they're running them with the minimal privileges uh, that those require, that can help make an attacker's life um, a lot more difficult uh, for them. The other thing is uh, looking at... Uh, reducing, uh, locking down and, and simplifying the number of applications on estates. Uh, it's, a, it's a challenge that a lot of our clients have, especially on their legacy IT estates, when they might be running tens of thousands of you know, applications. So anything that can be done to look at the applications that you've got on your network, reduce the number of applications and, and lock down those applications is key. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point. You know, um, supply chain security is good, but you know, it's not the be all and end all. So you know, we need to provide. You know, we we need to kind of encourage organisations to provide some level of you know assurance over their supply chain. But you know, they need to have kind of other kind of compensating controls like defence in depth, so that you know, if it turns out that there is indeed a vulnerability in that supply chain, so that you know, first of all. The, the actual impact of that is limited. So Will talked about, you know, uh, minimizing the privileges that we give to those, uh, that type of software. And then also that, you know, there's the right levels of like detection and response around that. Just to follow up on that point, um, the Sunburst attack is reported to have been undetected for some time. Will, um, why do you think this was? Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Abby. And uh, yeah, it looks like the attack went on for, for over nine months at many organisations and before being detected, um, including some security companies and large tech companies, which does raise a question around how effective are organisations' detection and response processes. I think there's a couple of reasons why uh, the attacker was able to remain undetected for so long. So first up, or maybe the attacker was using um, many known techniques, the attacker was putting significant effort in uh, evading detection when they're on organizations' networks and being very patient in uh, the activity that they're carrying out. That's very unlike some of the cybercrime groups uh, who are carrying out ransomware attacks and moving really quickly and fast through organizations' networks and triggering alerts. These attackers knew what they were doing, they were very patient and they wanted to remain undetected. Um, and, and the second reason is what this attacker did was when they arrived on organizations' networks was they moved very quickly to compromise privileged accounts and move on to cloud environments. And those are two areas that we often see organizations uh, being weaker at in terms of having the right logging, monitoring, and detection in place. Um, traditional organizations are focused on detecting malware and malicious commands and processes being run on endpoints. But this attacker moved very quickly uh, up into cloud environments using APIs to uh, to steal and exfiltrate data from organizations' cloud services and and, and moving around uh, in, inside cloud environments. Mm -hmm. so, so we'll just to pick up on that point, um, is it fair to say that Sunburst has shown that organizations, well, many of them still don't have effective threat detection and response capabilities in place then? It's definitely fair to say that it's something that organisations still really struggle with. Um, and I think there's a couple of reasons uh, why that's the case. So first up, um, organisations don't do enough validation around their detection and response capabilities. I think that's a, an area that a lot more organisations can do more in um, and use purple teaming and security testing to test the, uh, the tools and technology that they put in place to detect these attacks can actually detect these attacks and do detect these attacks and actually let a SOC know what to do 
um, when they detect these attacks. Um, and I think, secondly, um, as I alluded to in the, that previous answer, um, organizations are really traditionally focused on detecting malware and processes. And actually, uh, now organizations are moving so quickly up into the cloud, they need to pivot their detection um, and response capabilities up into to cloud environments and making sure that they can detect attacks against those um, and know what to do when those alerts go off. And moving on to look more at threat detection, the Sunburst attacker is reported to have targeted Azure's Active Directory and cloud services once they gain access to a victim's network. Uh, Will, can you tell us a little bit more about this? Yeah, of course, Abby. I think this is something that I found really interesting um, over the last uh, month or so, um, when all the revelations have come out of the, about these attacks. So we saw this actor doing two things relating to Azure AD and Microsoft 365. So first up, when the attacker broke into the networks of these companies, the on-premise networks, we saw the attacker stealing keys and credentials um, from on-premise systems and then using those keys and credentials to gain access to cloud services. So the attacker was moving from on-premise networks up into to cloud services. And you know, a few years ago, uh, people might have wondered, like, why, would the, why would the attacker be trying to do that? All the sensitive data is on the on-premise network. But actually now, when the organization is moving so much up to the cloud, actually a lot of organization's sensitive data is all sitting up in those cloud services, like email, instant messenger chats, uh, files, um, it's all up there in the cloud. So this attacker moved really quickly and took those keys and credentials to enable them to do that. Um, and secondly, uh, we saw the attacker making modifications to Azure Active Directory um, and Microsoft 365 to facilitate long-term stealthy access to Microsoft 365 data, and whether that's emails or instant messengers or, or files. Um, so both very interesting attacks, both very difficult to detect, and both a lot of companies, probably the first time that they've considered and um, that these attacks could be carried out against their, their cloud um, infrastructure. Well, you've, you've mentioned cloud services a few times in your response. Why are organizations vulnerable to these new risks attributed to the cloud? Um, I, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first up, the workload that organizations has has doubled. Um, security teams and organizations um, now have to manage both on-premise environments and also cloud environments. So security teams are more stretched. Um, there's definitely a lack of expertise um, in the cybersecurity industry uh, around cloud services and also in organizations around how to secure cloud services. Um, I think thirdly, cloud services are really quickly evolving um, and requiring new security controls to be put in place um, to protect those. And organizations have to keep up with that. Um, and every few months, we're seeing new features um, and new capabilities uh, in cloud services. And all of those might bring new risks and threats that organizations have to consider. Um, and then I think lastly, uh, when organizations are moving up into the cloud, they're not prioritizing securing privileged access enough. Um, and as uh, systems and data is moved up into the cloud, actually identity becomes the most important thing um, to secure an organization's networks because it's that identity that can be used to authenticate to cloud services and gain access uh, to that data. So that's something really important that organizations should be focusing on. 
I think that's a really interesting point, Will, just around like, identity, actually. I, I think Microsoft's been saying recently that identity is the new perimeter. And I think that's such a, a, a great kind of clear statement around it. And, you know, we previously thought around like having firewalls and everything as, you know, segregating off our internal corporate environment from the rest of the world. But now, actually, with the growth in cloud services, identity is that new perimeter as opposed to, you know, what we might traditionally think of that as. So it sounds like a lot for companies to keep up with. And, and thanks for providing those, those really important points. And so, Gabe, I guess a question that you could provide some um, insight into is looking ahead, how can our listeners respond? Yeah, sure. So I think there's probably four key things that uh, organizations need to do in terms of the like, you know, medium to long-ish term response to this. Um, obviously, it's always going to depend on their, their kind of specific security challenges and their environment. Um, but broadly, that's around securing privileged access, uh, looking to secure the kind of new security risks that Will talked about from the cloud, improving detection and response capabilities, uh, and looking to like, manage those supply chain risks, um, both in terms of you know, actually assuring that supply chain and making sure that you know, the, the software in that supply chain is properly secured when it's in the environment. And so to kind of dive into some of those, um, so first of all, around like securing privileged access to infrastructure and cloud services, so, you know, I talked a little bit uh, and Will was talking about, you know, identity being the new perimeter. Uh, and I think that's so true. And I think, like, you know, securing privileged access is one of those things in IT that perhaps isn't the most exciting, cool thing. But actually, if we can do that right, then that's so, so important. Um, so, you know, doing things like limiting the number of users and kind of service accounts which have domain admin privileges and ensuring that those uh, are all protected with kind of strong authentication, be that, you know, really long uh, passwords, um, you know, which are managed through some kind of like privileged access management solution or, you know, implementing things like multi-factor authentication or like risk-based authentication. Uh, you know, all of that I think is so important to prevent the attacker from being able to elevate their privileges. Um, and then around like detection and response to pick up on another of those things. Uh, I think, you know, we need to be in the mindset that, um, you know, a breach is realistically going to happen and being able to really quickly and effectively detect that breach and then respond to it is so important. So, you know, having the right, you know, having a clear understanding of the threats that are, that are gonna target your organization, the kind of tool, tools and techniques that they're gonna use. Um, and then what that means in terms of, you know, logging so that you can actually effectively spot those threats and kind of attack techniques on your environment. Um, and that, you know, you have all the, you know, technical logging in place and the, you know, alerting uh, and use cases in place to, to kind of fire on all of that. Uh, I think that's really important. And then, you know, being able to execute that efficient and effective response. So, you know, having the right people process and technology in place to actually execute that. So, yeah, I think lots of things to think about, but those are some key things from my perspective. No, thanks, Gabe. It sounds like you've picked up on some really fundamental points. And I think it is really commonly those those hard basics rather than those new trending areas of security that people tend to focus on um, short term. Yeah. Um, so my next question is for organizations looking to develop more effective detection and response capabilities, what would you say are some really important things they should be considering? Yeah, sure. Um, so I think that the first thing is to probably consider like outsourcing. So lots of organizations just aren't going to be able to have aren't going to be able to build the, the level of detection and response capabilities that they require. So, you know, looking really critically at your own security operations function and working out what can we deliver effectively in-house and what do we need to think about outsourcing? 
Um, and there are loads of service providers out there that can help with this kind of thing. So, you know, from a detection and response perspective, you know, there's like the kind of managed cyber defense offerings whereby, you know, a third party service provider can, you know, monitor the environment for you and provide that kind of initial like technical response to uh, ensure that, you know, the only alerts that you're getting are validated incidents uh, and, you know, where possible, all of the kind of low hanging fruit is already all being dealt with. Um, so that, you know, your kind of in-house team isn't being swamped with alerting. I think that's really important. Um, and then I think uh, something that Will touched on earlier was like purple teaming. So, you know, actually being able to validate that you are developing effective detection and response capabilities. Um, so, you know, something that we've done a lot with organizations in the past is, you know, using kind of combined teams of red and blue team, and so purple teaming to uh, execute offensive security tool, uh, offensive security techniques, or kind of emulate attack techniques on their environments, and then kind of assess in real time organizations' capabilities to detect that activity uh, and to respond to it, and then you know over the course of that process, seeking to you know iteratively improve that. So you know. Is our SOC able to detect like curb roasting? If not, why not? Um, can we bring the logs on board in order to be able to, to detect that activity? Uh, and then once we've detected it, do we know how to respond to it? If not, can we write, can we kind of train the people? Can we write the processes uh, and ensure that the technology it, it is right to respond? So really like validating that actually those processes, that all of those capabilities are in place. Um, and, you know, I, I touched as well on, you know, logs and stuff and I think, as well, Will's talked about some of the new risks from cloud and, uh, you know, just making sure that all of your kind of threat detection and response capabilities cover those kind of new environments and are able to detect attacks on those platforms, which perhaps a lot of security teams might not necessarily be uh, as comfortable with as kind of other more traditional attack techniques. Thanks, Gabe. And also, Will, that's a great summary of Sunburst and what our listeners can learn from it. Thank you so much again for joining us. And thanks to everyone listening. We hope this has been a useful summary with some actionable steps to take in the wake of Sunburst. To find out more on how you can improve your cybersecurity, just search PwC Cybersecurity. And of course, please subscribe to receive our latest episodes. See you next time.